Thank you, William's family. What a great reminder that is to all of us uh, that we can do all things through Christ. So today for the message, uh, we're going to be in two passages in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew 6, starting in verse 5 to 13, and then we'll go to Matthew 7. Uh, And if you ever are bored and want to do a lot of reading, you can read on various interpreters and uh, commenters what they have to say about the Sermon on the Mount. And what you will find is that they all say something different. Uh, There are dozens and dozens of topics in the Sermon on the Mount and seemingly a million different ways to understand them. And so I'm going to be looking at prayer within the Sermon on the Mount. And to catch you up to speed a little bit on where we are in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has grown up in Nazareth. He's been baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, and he's overcome Satan's temptations in the wilderness. His ministry has begun preaching and performing miracles in the region of Galilee. And the core of his message is in Matthew 4.17, which tells us, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Matthew 4.23, which tells us Jesus is preaching the gospel or the good news of the kingdom. In Matthew 4.18-23, Jesus picks his first disciples, Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And Matthew 4.23-25 tells us that as Jesus is preaching and teaching, and as he is performing miracles which authenticate his message, large crowds are coming to him from regions all over. Galilee, Syria, Decapolis, Judea, they are all coming to hear Jesus. And, more importantly for them, to be healed by his miracles. So Matthew 5, which starts our Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus addressing his disciples on a mountain, hence the name Sermon on the Mount, with these crowds that have come to him listening in the background. And the question on everyone's mind at this point in time, probably is how do I enter the kingdom of heaven? That's what Jesus is preaching about. So how do I, as an individual, get into that kingdom? Because I want to be in that kingdom. So how does that happen? And Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 1 to 12, with some very startling teachings on what true blessedness is. We call them the Beatitudes. But this blessedness that Jesus speaks about is very different than what the culture and the world would consider blessedness. It's a very sharp contrast to what was thought at the time. And Jesus goes even further, saying that his disciples should be like salt and light. They should be very different from the world, noticeably different from the world, just like salt and light. I mean, if you've ever stumbled around in your house early in the morning to use the restroom, and you've gone from pitch black to bright fluorescent light, you know just how contrasting light and dark is. And that's what followers of Jesus are called to be like. Now, all of these teachings about being different, about contrasting, would cause some people to be alarmed in the audience. Is Jesus teaching something other than the law? Because this is very different than what we've heard before. And Jesus makes it very clear. He has not come to abolish a law, but he's come to fulfill it in his person and in his work and in his teachings, where he gives the correct interpretation of the law. Matthew 5.20 tells us who will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
It is anyone who has a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You have to have a righteousness that is of a higher quality than the scribes and the Pharisees. Their righteousness being based off of works only. And then in Matthew 5, 21 to 48, Jesus gives correct interpretations of the law. Correct understandings of the law. There are six topics and they start with, you have heard it said. And then he gives the popular teaching. Followed by, but I say to you. And then he gives the correct teaching. And he bases his teaching in his own authority, but I say to you. And then he goes from correcting false teachings to correcting false practices. And this is where our first passage falls in. Matthew 6, 1 to 18 is Jesus looking at three different practices that were common for Jews at the time. It was almsgiving, giving to the poor. It was prayer, which is what we're going to be looking at today. And it was fasting. And so Jesus is going to be correcting them on how they are actually supposed to pray. And what I want us to get out of this message is that prayer is an act of faith, which grows our faith and motivates us to do God's will on earth. So we should pray persistently. Prayer is an act of faith which grows our faith and motivates us to do his will on earth. So we should pray persistently. So we're going to start in Matthew 6. Hopefully you've had time to flip there. And we're going to read verses 5 to 8, which is what we read this morning as a congregation. Verse 5. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words, so do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. So in verses 5 and 6, Jesus first addresses the action of prayer. And he tells his disciples what not to be like. Don't be like the hypocrites. Uh, this word hypocrite is the word in Greek for actor. So these hypocrites, these actors, would stand in the synagogues where everybody would gather on the Sabbath or on the street corner, and they would give these really big impressive prayers. Something probably like, if you turn with me to Luke 18, verses 10 to 12, something very much like the Pharisee's prayer in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, a parable, a story that you're probably very familiar with. Luke 18, verses 10 to 12. This is not the whole parable, but it shows what kind of a prayer Jesus may be referencing in the Sermon on the Mount. So Luke chapter 18, verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. That is probably the type of prayer Jesus has in mind here. The prayer of these hypocrites. That opens up with, God, I thank you that I am better than other people. 
Except in the parable of the Pharisee, he's praying that to himself. In this case, these were prayers that people said out loud. This is what the hypocrites would do. It's external obedience. They are praying, but it's internal sin. It is complete arrogance. Prayer is perverted into a look at me and how great I am self-righteous act. And the only reward for that type of prayer is other people look at you and they go, wow, that guy's pretty good. There's no heavenly reward for a prayer like this. Jesus tells his disciples instead to go into the inner room, close the door, and pray in secret without anyone knowing. Literally the exact opposite of how the hypocrites pray. And I want to make a comment. This action of go to your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who's in secret is not some secret formula to make your prayers work all the time. So don't treat it like that. What Jesus is getting at, though, is that they are to isolate themselves and to pray simply to the Father. They're not supposed to pray for other people's enjoyment or to look good in front of other people. Because when you isolate yourself, two things happen. One, you are less tempted to pray fake prayers. As someone who prays publicly multiple times a week, it is very tempting to be fake. And I would be lying to you if I said I didn't fail in that area. And I'm sure others who have prayed publicly, whether it's in a church or at the dinner table, have had those days where your prayer is more for other people to hear, not you speaking to God. So by isolating yourself, you remove that temptation. And by isolating yourself, you remove the distractions that come with prayer, such as the screen in your pocket or the screen in your living room. You remove those distractions. You isolate yourself. So to put it more positively, what Jesus is calling his disciples to do is to offer sincere, focused prayers of faith. Prayers that are not fake. Prayers that are not distracted. So they're sincere, they're focused, and they're prayers of faith because you know your heavenly Father rewards those prayers. So that's what he corrects in the action of praying. But he also addresses the content of prayers. And this is in verses 7 and 8. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Gentile prayers to false gods involved a lot of repetition. And you were repeating one of two things, most likely. Either the god or goddess's name that you were praying to, or some type of sentence or phrase that you were supposed to pray to them. The idea being, if I pray this prayer enough, this god or goddess will hear me, I will get their attention, and then they'll give me what I want. What this looked like was people going around praying nonsense praying things that they were not paying attention to. The New American Standard puts it as meaningless repetition. The New English Translation puts it as babble. The ESV calls it empty phrases that you heap up, literally a mountain of nothing. The pagan prayers, the Gentile prayers, were mechanical. I'm just going to repeat this over and over and over and over again until I get what I want, until I get my God's attention and then I'm going to get what I want. Because if I say the name enough, or if I say the phrase enough, I've unlocked something. I've 
crack the code, the magic password works, and now my genie comes out of my bottle and I get my wishes. This is not the case for followers of Jesus Christ in relationship with God. Verse 8 tells us that our Father knows what we need before we ask him. Our Father knows what we need even if we don't. And let me make a comment here. Jonah needed the fish. And Paul needed the thorn in the flesh. Your Heavenly Father knows what you need even when you don't. And even if you might not like it. The implication though, the fact that God knows what you need before you ask him, is that he hears you. For followers of Jesus Christ, we don't have to get God's attention. He's not too busy. He's not off doing something else and we have to scream and shout like a toddler trying to get their parents' attention just repeating the name. Dad, 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 until the parent turns to us. That's not prayer for the Christian because we have the Father's attention when we pray. We don't need to get it. But verse 8 leads to a very interesting question. And this is a question that was asked in Sunday school uh, a few weeks ago when I was in one of the adult classes when we were talking about the sovereignty of God. If God knows what you need before you ask, why pray? If God knows what you need before you ask, why pray? Let's take it a step further. If God does whatever he pleases, as Psalm 115.3 and 135.6 tells us, if God, according to Isaiah 46, 9, declares the end from the beginning, if God will establish his purpose and accomplish his good pleasure, according to Isaiah 46, 10, if the God we serve knows everything and has a plan that was before creation itself on how everything is going to go, why pray at all? And I'm going to posit to you that if the reason you pray is so that you can bend God to your will, there is absolutely no reason for you to pray. If your reason to pray is that you can rub your lamp and have your genie come out and give you your wishes, there is absolutely no reason to pray. If your plan in prayer is to get the God of the universe to change his eternal plan so it's what you want and bend him to your will, you should not pray because you have no reason to. Because his plan is not going to change, and he is not going to change. What this means is that the reason to pray, the reason why we pray, is something other than getting what we want. Is something other than wish fulfillment. Now, before we get to why we should pray, Let's review a little bit of what Jesus has already said. First, he has told his followers, don't put on a show when you pray. He has also told his followers, don't use meaningless repetition like the pagans do in their prayers. So, one, prayer is not to make you look better in the eyes of other people. And two, prayer is not some magic ritual that you get what you want if you do it enough. Jesus has also told his followers, followers, to pray privately to the Father, trusting that he rewards prayer. He has also told his followers that the Father already knows what they need before they ask. So prayer is an act of faith, trusting that God rewards prayer and trusting that God knows what you need. 
And then, so having reviewed that, Jesus now gives probably the best-known prayer in all of history, what we would call the Lord's Prayer. This is the model for prayer. Verse 9. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, the way I read this, I split verses 8 and 9. We read verses 5 to 8. I talked a bunch. And then we read verses 9 to 13. When Jesus is giving this, this is how verses 8 and 9 would sound. So do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Therefore, you should pray in this way. Evidently, Jesus did not consider the fact that God knows everything as an obstacle to prayer. In fact, Jesus considered the fact that God knows everything and has determined everything that's going to happen as a reason to pray. Now, this prayer that he gives is known as the Lord's Prayer. And it is a model for the disciples to follow. And I want you to understand that this is a model. This is not a prayer that you're supposed to pray verbatim until it works, because that's a pagan understanding of prayer. You can pray this prayer verbatim, and millions of people have, and it is a fine prayer. But it is a model of what you are to pray like. It is not a magic code or formula that if you pray it enough, you get what you want because that's a Gentile or pagan understanding of prayer. It is meant to show the disciples how to pray. It's meant to show us how to pray. It's not a script to repeat. And the prayer opens in a very unique way for the time. God is addressed as Father, our Father. To us, that is supernatural. Like, that is just what we do in prayer. We address God as Father as 21st American Christians, 21st century American Christians. To the Jews at this time, this is unheard of. I'll give you some examples of other prayers in the Old Testament. David, when he is responding in prayer, in praise actually, to God for establishing his kingdom, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he uses the phrase, Lord God. Daniel, when he is confessing the sins of the people, and he comes to the Lord in prayer, uses the phrase, Lord, the great and awesome God, in Daniel 9. Nehemiah, in Nehemiah 1, when he's confessing the sins of the people and asking the Lord to bless the work of rebuilding the walls, uses the phrase, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Ezra, when he's confessing the sins of the people, which hopefully you notice a pattern here in a lot of these prayers, uh, in Ezra chapter 9, uses the phrase, my God. These are personal addresses. These are addresses that extol and glorify God, but these are not addresses that are as intimate as using the term father to refer to God. Maybe the God of my fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or if you read Old Testament literature, oftentimes an illustration that's used of God dealing with human beings is of a father disciplining a child. So they would make some connections, but you did not call God father in your prayers. 
And so right away what Jesus is doing is he's showing his followers how they are different because they can call God their father. They have a relationship with him, a personal relationship with him where they are his child and he is their father. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is the same privilege that you enjoy. That you are a child of God and he is your father. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you do not believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you cannot address God as father. In fact, you cannot address God at all because you are not one of his. The only way to enjoy this relationship with the father is through salvation in Jesus Christ. God is good and God is holy and you are not and that is the scariest sentence I can ever give you. Because if God is good, what is he supposed to do with you? You, before God, because of your sins, because of the things you have done wrong, are a criminal before God. And there is a punishment for your crimes. And it is death. It's not just physical death. It is separation from God because he, being holy and good, cannot be in your presence. You cannot be in his presence, technically. And so when you die, you will be forever separated from God because of your sins. And the crime has already been committed, so none of your good works make up for it. But God, even though you were a criminal, an enemy, loved you enough that he sent his son Jesus Christ, the guy who is giving the Sermon on the Mount, who lived a perfect life. Beyond that, he fulfilled the law. And he, Jesus Christ, willingly laid down his life for you. He paid the price that you owed by dying in your place and shedding his blood in your place to forgive you of sins and to save you from sins so that when you trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, what he has done for you as enough to forgive you of your sins and right your relationship with God, you are saved. When you turn from the sins and the crimes that you committed to God, against God, and you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and accept what he did for you as enough to save you from your sins, you are saved and you immediately enjoy a new relationship with God. Where you are no longer an enemy of God, but a child of God, and you can address God as Father. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ here, you can address God as Father because that is exactly what he is. He is your Father. The Lord's Prayer, the rest of it, getting past the first two words, right? Verses 9 and 10. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This first part of the Lord's Prayer focuses on God the Father. It centers on glorifying God and seeing his will accomplished on earth, both now and in the future. The word hallowed there... Uh, can also be read as honored. And your will be done, your kingdom come. Both of those phrases are a desire to see what God wants accomplished, accomplished. It is a prayer that desires to see God's work done, whether through you or through somebody else. The second part of the Lord's Prayer, verses 11 and 13. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. The second part of the Lord's Prayer focuses on the individual needs within the community. 
There are three things that it centers on. Provision, forgiveness, and protection. Provision would be the daily bread. Now we, when we work in today's society, we usually don't get paid at the end of the day. We usually get paid at the end of the week or every other week. I understand that there are some exceptions to that, but by and large, you get paid on a weekly, bi-weekly, or some other schedule. To the audience listening to Jesus, especially the men, they would understand what daily bread means. If you remember the parable of the landowner who needs some workers, he goes to the town square and he finds a bunch of people standing around. And he says, do you have any work? And they go, nope. And he goes, okay, come work in my vineyard and I'll give you a denarius, which is a day's wage. A little bit later, he finds more people. He sends them to work. He does it like five or six times, sends them all to work. And at the end of that, they get their day's wage. If you didn't have steady employment, this is what you had to do. You would go to the town square where people would gather and you would offer yourself to anyone who was looking for laborers for their farm, their vineyard, their whatever it may be. And that's how you got your daily bread because at the end of the day, you got your day's wage and then you could go buy the stuff you needed. And you hoped that you worked well enough that they would just hire you and you could always have your day's wage. You could always have your daily bread because if they didn't, you were back out in the town square looking for work again, hoping that at the end of the day, you had your daily bread. Hoping at the end of the day, you had your day's wage. So the first is for what we need for the day, our daily bread. The second is forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins before God, which reestablishes fellowship. If you are saved, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you can never get unsaved. You can't break your relationship with God, but you can break your fellowship. Where God feels distant, where you know that you're in sin and you feel the weight of that. That's a break in fellowship. And forgiveness, asking for forgiveness of sins, restores that fellowship so that you can once again enjoy the relationship you have with the Father. And when we receive forgiveness of sins, it leads to forgiving others out of gratitude, which affects the community. And lastly, there's protection. Protection from temptation or trials, depending on how your translation puts it. And if these temptations or these trials are given into, not only would they break fellowship with God, they would oftentimes break fellowship with other people in the community. So these are the three things that the Lord's Prayer, this second half, focuses on. What we need for the day, forgiveness and protection, physical and spiritual needs that impact both you and others. So the Lord's Prayer, the model here, stresses two things. It stresses glorifying God, and it stresses relying on him. And that's why we pray, by the way. That's the answer to that question of why do we pray, of why pray. Because it glorifies God and it grows our faith. Prayer glorifies God and it grows our faith, our reliance on him. Prayer encourages the prayee, the one who is praying, to get involved in the work as prayer renews your mind. Prayer encourages you to be part of the person who does the will of the Lord on earth. To give you an example, if we were to just go back into, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5, 43 and 44, just flip back one chapter. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, here's the correct interpretation of the law, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So, 
When we pray for God to be glorified, that motivates us to be involved in the work, such as loving your enemy. So, already, regardless of what the outcome is, you, in praying for God to be glorified and being motivated to glorify God by doing his will through loving your enemy, are already glorifying God through your prayer and through your work. So God is being glorified through that. And you're at work doing the Lord's will. Additionally, that leads to opportunities to share the gospel. Because now your enemy, instead of hating them, you're loving them, and they notice, and they don't know what's going on. Why are you treating me that way? They want to know. Gives you opportunities to share the gospel. And then through those opportunities to share the gospel, God the Father sends the Holy Spirit, saves them, and now you have two people glorifying God and participating in the work. To put it another way, when you pray for God to be glorified, it motivates you to do the work. And when you do the work, God is glorified. But also, when you're doing the work, others get saved and begin glorifying God, and now you have more people glorifying God. It is a very positive cycle. It is a very positive circle as we do the work. And we have to do the work. Because God, in his infinite wisdom and immeasurable grace, decided that he would use you and your prayers to accomplish his goals. He has decided that you and your prayers are what he is going to use to accomplish some of his goals. A part of God's eternal plan involves you. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, this is a passage we're all very familiar with. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You have been saved by, or by grace you have been saved through faith. But then we get to verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for funsies. Created in Christ Jesus so we can twiddle our thumbs. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God didn't save you for fun. God, in his infinite plan, in his eternal plan, his infinite wisdom and his immeasurable grace, decided before the creation of the world that he was going to save you and he was going to use you to accomplish his goal. And part of that being used is in your prayer life. Prayer draws the prayee to trust in God the Father to provide what you need. Prayer draws the prayee to work. Prayer is itself an act of faith because you are just trusting that the words you said are going to your Father who hears, and they do. Now remember, the Lord's Prayer is a model. So you can pray the Lord's Prayer. But it also means a prayer such as, Father God, may you be glorified through what I do and say today. Give me the patience I need to love so-and-so. And you can insert the name that you have in mind there. Keep me from anger and impatience. Amen. That is a prayer that follows the model of the Lord's Prayer. It seeks to glorify God and it asks for what you need for today. In this case, patience so that you can do the work, so that you can love. And it asks for protection from temptation, anger, and impatience. So that's why we pray. Now, our last passage, and what we're going to close with, 
is in Matthew 7, 7 to 11, because this is the other mention of prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this section, Matthew 7, 7 to 11, and I'm, I'm going to blow your mind here theologically. Uh, Matthew 7, 7 comes after Matthew 7, 6. I know, it's, it's astounding. But it's important to read these verses in context. Matthew 6, 19 all the way to 7.6, is Jesus giving quite a bit of teachings regarding the world. Because you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, do not exist in heaven. You exist right here, in this world. And this world has a lot of temptations. This world has a lot of things to worry about. And this world has a lot of people. And it's a world you are in 24-7. So Jesus is addressing that in Matthew 6.19 to 7.6. In this section, Matthew six nineteen to Matthew 7, 6, we have such statements as, you cannot serve God in wealth. Do not be worried about your life. Do not worry about tomorrow. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Do not judge. Do not give what is holy to dogs. If you are a disciple, if you are in the audience, you are reeling at this point. How on earth can I do any of that? How on earth can I accomplish any of these things? Matthew 6, 19 to 7, 6 sets a very high bar. I would encourage you, read it this afternoon and see how well you're doing based on what Jesus is calling you to do. It is an incredibly high bar that Jesus sets there. So how on earth could I do it? And here we get to seven, or Matthew 7, 7 to 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask of him? In verse 7, there are three verbs, ask, seek, and knock. These are considered, well, these are present tense verbs. What that means is that they are always done in the now. So a way you could translate it is keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. The verb is describing constant action. They are always done in the now. And when we persistently do these things, it will be given, you will find, and it will be opened. Now, this means also that if we aren't asking and seeking and knocking in prayer, it will not be given. You will not find, and it will not be opened. But the whole, I, everything that's given in Matthew 6, 19 to 7, 6, really everything that's given in the Sermon on the Mount, is designed to show you that in your own strength and in your own righteousness, you can't do it which is where these commands come in in verses 7 and 8. Jesus is encouraging not a reliance on your own righteousness and your own works, because that's the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. He's encouraging a righteousness based on faith in God the Father, who you come to in prayer. Jesus is encouraging a constant, persistent reliance on the Father to enable us to do these things. And he illustrates it for us. In verses, 11 to thir- or verses uh, 9 to 11, we have a how much more illustration. 
Verse 9, what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. So that's, that's the first thing that he's illustrating for us, is a father giving gifts to the son, to their son. When your kid asks for something that they need, you don't give them something either A, useless, like a rock, or B, dangerous, like a snake. You, as Jesus puts it, being evil, you, a sinner with a sin nature in a sin-cursed world, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more does your heavenly father know how to give good things to those who ask him? How much more does your perfect, holy, righteous, good, heavenly father know how to give good things to those who ask him? And the good things would be everything that Jesus has been teaching about in the Sermon on the Mount. Loving your enemy, turning the other cheek. These are the things that we can do when we are prayerfully reliant on God. When our faith is in God to give us the strength and the ability to do these things. All of this is to encourage us to pray. Prayer is an act of faith which grows our faith and motivates us to do his will on earth. So we should pray with persistence. The reason you pray, the purpose of prayer is twofold. One, it is to glorify God and to see him glorified. And two, it is to grow your faith in him, grow your reliance on him. That is why you pray. To glorify God and to see him glorified and to grow your faith, to grow your reliance on him. You serve a God who hears you. You serve a God who knows what you need and you serve a God who gives good gifts. You are not like the pagans where you have to repeat and repeat and repeat ad infinitum to get God's attention. I think of Baal and the prophets, or I'm sorry, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. The prophets of Baal spend the whole day doing what? Trying to get Baal's attention. And Elijah mocks him for it, going so far as to say he's probably relieving himself and he can't get to you right now. That is not the God that we serve. We serve a God who hears. You are praying to a heavenly father who hears you and who rewards his children for faithfully coming to him. Beyond this, the heavenly father that we all serve in his infinite wisdom and immeasurable grace has good works that you need to be doing. And that involves prayer. He has decided to use you in his plan to accomplish his goals on earth. So faithfully come to him in prayer that he may be glorified that you may partake in the work that leads to further glory to God and that your faith may grow. And that is why we pray. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the teachings of Jesus within it. I thank you that you constantly remind us of where our strength comes from, whether it's in song or in message, that it comes from you. I pray that today, in the conversations we have, in the things that we do, tomorrow, this week, the rest of our lives, we are constantly seeking to glorify you and praying that you may be glorified. 
And I pray that as that renews our minds, as we begin to focus on what's important, your glory and your plan, that we would be motivated to do the work that you would have us to do here on earth. That we may glorify you through it and that others may come to know your son as savior and glorify you through it. Help us to trust you. Help us to come to you in prayer about everything. Knowing that you hear us. Knowing that you are there. Knowing that you are not too busy or that we're not being annoying. But that you are a heavenly father who hears us, who knows what we need, and who rewards his children for faithfully coming to him. God, I pray that you be glorified through this word. I pray that you be glorified through the work of this church, through the people in this church. And I pray that all of us would be growing on our faith, daily coming to you for what we need day in and day out. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.